Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Would you guys grab your seat? I don't know about y'all, but what a blessing to be led by our students this morning. Praise God for all that they have done. We appreciate Miss Devin and all of her work with that praise team. And of course, Pastor Will and everybody that had a part in that outstanding job. Anybody here a Shakespeare fan? Whenever I read Shakespeare, I always hear it in like an English accent. It's hard to read it with an American accent. But in scene two of William Shakespeare's famous play, Romeo and Juliet, Capulet, well, her last name was Capulet, she famously said about Romeo Montague, she said, Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Y'all remember that? She goes on, she says, Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? Is it nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man? Oh, be some of the name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Juliet uh, Juliet asks a very interesting question. She says, what's in a name? And her argument is basically this, that the names that we use for stuff are often arbitrary. They're irrelevant to their intrinsic qualities. You see, if a rose was called a maguai or a galefa, or if a rose was called a trandifer, whatever words you want to use there, it would still smell just as sweet. And that's true. But here's the deal. When you think about names and words, not all names and words are arbitrary and irrelevant. You see, some names are there because they communicate something. And sometimes that's something that that name communicates is really, really important. And that's the case today as we turn in God's word here and, and look at a name as we're continuing in our series that I'm calling Foretold, where we're digging into places where the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus are cited in the New Testament. Because we want to see as we come into this Easter season, who is this Jesus really? And we've got prophecy on top of prophecy that tells us who this Jesus is. So today we turn to a name that is indeed very important. In fact, it also happens to be Jesus' favorite name for himself. I'm talking about the name, the Son of Man. That's the title of today's message, Son of Man. Now in the Gospels, Jesus is called the Son of Man 82 times. And 80 out of those 82 times, guess who says the name Son of Man? Jesus himself does. And so he himself, it comes out of his mouth the majority of the time. It's his favorite name by far for himself. For instance, Matthew 9, 6 says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is Jesus speaking here. Jesus then said to, uh, said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. How about Mark 2? Mark 2, 27 and 28. 
And Jesus said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, how about Luke then? How how do we see it in Luke? Luke 7, 33 and 34. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, this is Jesus speaking, he has a demon. Verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, we don't want to leave the Gospel of John out. How about John chapter 3, 13 through 15? And I read a little bit of this a moment ago. Jesus speaking there to Nicodemus, right before he says, for God so loved the world, right? He says this in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so over and over and over again, Jesus is calling himself the son of man. And you and I, we've heard that. We've heard he's the son of God and he's the son of man. Last week we looked at what does it mean when Jesus says he is the son of God and when the scripture claims that he is the son of God. This week we're going to look at what does it mean that Jesus is the son of man. As Juliet asked, what's in a name? And so what is in this name? There are two predominant truths that are communicated in this Name And here's the first one you need to grasp, is that Jesus is human. Just like last week when Jesus, when it was said of Jesus that he was the Son of God and that he is the Son of God, it communicated simply that Jesus is God. So this week, same thing with Jesus being called the Son of Man. It communicates that Jesus is human. To understand Son of God means human. The connection's made most clear in Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verse 3 through 6, the Word of God says this. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun uh, and the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is, listen to this, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So when you turn to the book of Psalms, you know that the Psalms are poetry, right? But this is not poetry like you and I are used to here in in our Western culture. This is Hebrew uh, poetry. And so they use some different devices. The, The words don't rhyme. There's not a certain meter like we would see in our poetry. No, one of the favorite devices for Hebrew poetry is a device, a poetic device that is called synonymous parallelism. That's a big word. It basically means this. The first line in Hebrew poetry communicates a concept, an idea. And then the second line, synonymous parallelism, the second line comes right under that, and it says the same idea with different words. With different words. So look here with me here, this really important spot here in in, in verse 4 here. Verse 4 right here. The same thing, same idea in in verse 4, but with different words. First, he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? That's one idea. And then to make it poetry, the Hebrew psalmist here, he's going to say the same thing again, but with different words. 
and that the Son of Man, that you care for him. Synonymous parallelism. So a man is a son of man. They are the same thing. What is the son of man? He is a man. He is human. And as we turn to the New Testament, that's the reason that the, uh, the author of Hebrews picks up on Psalm 8. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 says this. He's wanting to play up here Jesus' humanity. For it was not to angels, the author of Hebrew writes here, Hebrews 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which you are speaking. Verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. I love that, right? He, he just said, I've heard this before. It's testified somewhere. And then when you and I look, where is this somewhere that he's about to quote? Well, it's Psalm 8. What is man? The author of Hebrews continues. That you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower for a while, a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, who's he talking about here? Where well, the author of Hebrews goes on and tells us here. He, he, he brings in the commentary now. Now, in putting everything in, subject, in, in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see in subjection to him. We, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely whom? What does it say? Who, who is this? Everybody say, Jesus. Right? Oh, man. Hey, man, this is church. This is the easiest answer in the world, right? Everybody say Jesus. Jesus. That's who this is talking about here. It's talking about Jesus who was crowned with glory and honor because suffering death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus became the son of God, eternal God. He humbled himself and became a little lower than the angels by taking on flesh, by becoming a man. He became a son of God. Man, he didn't appear to be a man. He was a man. But preacher, didn't you tell us last week that he's God? That's right, he is. And now you're telling us that Jesus is human as well? Yeah, that's right. He's both. The old church fathers used to say it in Latin this way, that Jesus is verus homus and verus deus. He's truly man and truly God. His deity lacks nothing, but neither does his humanity. He is human. He, he was flesh just like us. He ate like us and, and drank like us. He bled like us and slept like us. He laughed like us and, and cried like us. To his complete deity, he added complete humanity. Such that it says this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. The word of God says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman. He was born of a woman just like you and me. He was truly human, truly man. We saw this last week, but it, 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 it comes with what we're talking about again this week in, in, in John chapter 1 verse 14. We know that the word is God, the Bible tells us there in John 1.1. 1, 1. But then we get down to verse 14 and it says, And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Son of God became a Son of Man. Jesus is 
human. That's the first truth. When you hear the, 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 the name Son of Man, what's in a name? Well, Jesus is human. And that, listen guys, that, that is a very important theological truth. But I need you to understand this morning that that's actually not the primary truth that this name communicates to us. You say, well, why would you say that? Well, here's the truth of the matter. Let me ask you a question. Did anybody in Jesus' day doubt his humanity? And the answer is, no way, not at all. Everybody was convinced that he was a man. I mean, you know, in fact, they were like, who does this man think he is? He thinks he's God. He didn't have to convince anybody he was a man. In fact, they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? And are not these his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and, and Judas? You see, everybody believed that Jesus was a man. So when Jesus said that he was the son of man, they were not stretched by that phrase in that aspect. You see, the prophet Ezekiel, for instance, you want, you want to find somebody who was called son of man. Well, the prophet Ezekiel was called son of man like 93 times. And every one of those times, it basically simply meant, you're just a man. You're just a man. And that when folks heard Jesus say, son of man, most folks heard it in that vein and they were not stretched. But there's another aspect the second aspect here that we want to look, uh, look at that's in this name, Son of Man, which stretch folks to the utmost, even to the point that they said, we've got to kill him. It stretched folks to the point they said, we have to put him to death. And here's that second aspect. When Jesus is called the Son of Man, it means that Jesus is the prophetic recipient of the entire earth from the ancient of days. Jesus is the prophetic recipient of the entire earth from the ancient of days. You see, on that Thursday night after Jesus was arrested, he was arrested on that Thursday before he was crucified on that Friday. And they quickly gathered up the, the high priest and the Jewish council, and, and they were going to have a quick court, a, a quick trial. It was actually a kangaroo court. It wasn't a real court. It shouldn't have happened, but it did. And they put them all together here and they were looking for any evidence they could get against him. And the Bible tells us that many people bore false witness against him, but they couldn't get their story straight. And so the stories disagreed enough that, they, that the council didn't get what they wanted, which was a reason to put Jesus to death. And the whole time that these liars were standing and bearing false witness against Jesus. He kept his mouth shut, the Bible tells us. And so the high priest finally stands up and says, hey, Jesus, are you going to say a word about any of this? Are you going to answer any of these accusations? And yet Jesus was silent until the high priest asked him a very pointed question. Are you the Christ the son of the blessed, to which Jesus finally opened his mouth. And here's what he said. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see, listen to this, the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And what was their response? 
He's just a man. No, that's not what they said. That's not the responded. Look at verse 63 here. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Why such a response if he was just saying, I'm a human If he just called himself the Son of Man like he had dozens and and dozens of times at this point in his public ministry, why all of a sudden killing? Well, that's because he added a couple of phrases. He didn't just say, I'm the Son of Man, but the Son of Man, he said, whom they would soon see seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And all of a sudden, they could no longer see Psalm 8. All of a sudden, they saw... Daniel 7, this prophecy about the Son of Man. You see, Daniel 7 introduces a vision. It's a vision that has these four beasts, one that looks like a lion, and then one looks like a bear, and then one that looks like a leopard, and then one that can't be compared to any animal on earth. It was ferocious. It was different than all the other ones. And in Daniel 7 there, the the Bible tells us that this fourth beast, it had ten horns and and then grew this little horn, another horn, an eleventh horn. It was little, but it uprooted three of the other horns and had eyes like a man and, and spoke boastfully. It terrorized the earth. But then we read this. Daniel 7, beginning in the ninth verse. Daniel 7, beginning in the ninth verse As I look, that's Daniel. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The Bible here says that the ancient of days came. Who is that? Well, beloved, that's, that's none other than God the Father, almighty God. And then we read in verse 11 down through verse 14. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. That's the little horn on, the, on, the, on that fourth beast. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw, Daniel continues, in the night visions and behold, here it is. With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, when Jesus was before that council there, he wasn't just claiming to be the son of man of Psalm 8, even though he was. He was also claiming to be the Son of Man in Daniel 
Seven, the one who would come on the clouds of heaven and who would be given the seat of power at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and receive dominion and glory and a a kingdom. He's claiming here, guys, to be the prophetic recipient of the entire earth from the ancient of days. I need you to consider for just a moment what this kingdom is like that he's going to receive from the ancient of days We read there in Daniel 7, I want you to first notice that his his kingdom will be exhaustive. If you were to look back through history and study the empires of the world, do you know which empire is the greatest empire, the largest by landmass to ever rule on the earth? You might be surprised to know that it's a nation who is actually only the size of Alabama. If this nation were put in America... It would be the size of Alabama. I'm talking about the tiny island of England. Did you know that in history it stands as being the largest empire by landmass that the the world has ever seen? We, We often think of the Roman Empire, right, as being big and bad and bold and all of those things. But the British Empire at its height was seven times bigger than the Roman Empire. It covered 14 million square miles. That is astonishing when you consider that it was only about 53,000 square miles of actual England. It covered 14 million square miles of the world. 7% of the landmass in the world. And you hear that and say, man, that is a big kingdom. But notice what it says here about the Son of Man's kingdom that he's given. It says here in Daniel 7 that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His kingdom is not 7% of the earth. His kingdom is 100% of the earth. It covers the entire earth. Guys, that means there's not a place on planet earth that he should not be worshipped. There's not a man, woman, boy, or girl on planet earth who's ever lived, whoever will live, that should not bow their knee and serve him. His kingdom is exhaustive. But it's not just exhaustive. Second, notice that his kingdom here in Daniel 7 is everlasting. Daniel 7 says that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Now, here in America, we don't have a king. We have a chief executive, the president, and, and, and he kind of has a dominion as the chief executive of the United States. And how long does he get to be that? Well, four years. Sometimes if he's really good, he gets to do it for eight years. But he has a term limit, doesn't he? His kingdom, quote, quote unquote, comes to an end. Same thing with the people in history and even living today who would be a true king. They're a real monarchy. Their their office may not have a term limit like our presidents, but guess what? They have a term limit. Just because their office doesn't, doesn't mean that they don't have a term limit, because guess what? One day they are going to die. King Louis XIV of France. Did you know he holds the record for the longest monarchy in the history of the world? He reigned in France For 72 years and 110 days. That's a long time. 
Queen Elizabeth II right now in England over the United Kingdom. She's getting close to that mark. At this point, Queen Elizabeth II, she has served 70 years and 41 days. So one day, if she continues to live, she's going to, she's going to surpass King Louis the 14th as the longest ever living monarchy. That's a really long time. But both of those kings and queens have something in common. And guess what that commonality is? Their kingdom will end because one day their term in this life will be up. But not so with the Son of Man. The Bible says that his dominion is everlasting. Not only is it everlasting and not only is it exhaustive, but third, the Bible tells us here in, in Daniel 7 that this kingdom is indestructible. It's exhaustive, it's everlasting, and it's indestructible. Look at Daniel 7 again. It says, His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Again, you look back in history, there have been some amazing empires that have really lasted a long time. For instance, the Portuguese empire it lasted for like 464 years or 454 years, somewhere in that neighborhood. The, the British empire didn't even last that long. Or think about the Ottoman empire. It was a great empire. Lasted at that point in, in the course of its history, 623 years. Or how about the Ethiopian empire? Did you know the Ethiopian empire lasted seven centuries, 700 years? Even the greatest empire that we think of, the Roman Empire, lasted around 1,500 years from 27 B.C. all the way to A.D. 1453. That's a really long time, it seems. But guess what? All of those empires were destroyed. All of those empires passed away. But the Bible here says that the Son of Man's kingdom, it's indestructible. It cannot be destroyed. He is the Son of Man. And he's going to receive this kingdom from the ancient of days. He is the prophetic recipient of the entire earth. And his kingdom will be exhaustive, everlasting, and indestructible. The ancient of days has given it to him. So that's the primary meaning when you read the title, the name Son of Man. What's in it? He is the recipient, the prophetic recipient of the entire earth from the ancient of days. And then secondarily, it means that Jesus is human. Guys, this, is the, this was the Jesus that was foretold. This is the Jesus that we celebrate this Easter. So now that we understand what's in this name, what are we to do in light of these truths? I want to point you to two things. One for each meaning of son of man. Let's think about it again, again for a moment. Jesus is human. Jesus is human. Here's what I want you to do in light of that truth. I want you to hope in Jesus' substitutionary work. Hope in Jesus' substitutionary work. You see, he became human, took on humanity, added humanity to his deity so that he could save humanity. He became man to save mankind. You know, it was the Cappadocian father. Gregory of Nazianzus, that said, that which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. In other words, what he's saying there, guys, is that if Jesus is not truly man, 
fully man, then you and I are not truly saved or fully saved. But praise God, Jesus didn't just take partial humanity. He he took the fullness of it. Yeah, he's truly God, but he's also truly man. And as a true man, a full man, he took on every faculty of our humanity and stood in our place as our substitute. Where we fail to earn heaven. Did you know that to get into heaven, all it takes is perfection? <laughs> Did you? That's all it takes. Just be perfect. Never sin. Where you and I failed to earn heaven. Jesus Christ stood in our place as man and earned heaven, living the sinless life that you and I could never live. But the Bible says it didn't just stop there. It also says that as our substitute, where we earned hell, he experienced hell for us. He paid hell for us. He stood in our place, being nailed to the cross, having our sins essentially nailed to him as he was nailed to the cross and he bore the wrath of God, the Bible says there, dying there at Calvary in our place, condemned he stood. It's in this substitution, his human life, his his human death that we find our hope because it's his substitutionary life and death where we find our forgiveness and we find our righteousness. You see, when he lived that life that you and I cannot live, he gives us his righteousness. And where he died the death that you and I deserve, he pays our debt for us. He takes our sin for us so that you and I will not perish but have everlasting life, the Bible says, with God in heaven. And after being laid in that tomb, Jesus was raised three days later to prove that there is indeed, beyond a shadow of a doubt, salvation for every person who will trust in his substitutionary life and Death. Beloved, hope in the work of this man, Jesus. He stood in your place. Hope in that. But secondly, this morning, as we think about Jesus being this prophetic recipient of the entire earth from the ancient of days, here's the second thing I want you to do this morning, and it's simply this serve the king. Serve the king. Remember what Daniel 7.14 said. Daniel 7.14 said, And the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? So that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. He's made king and we're to serve him. That includes all of us, every person in this room, Jesus Christ has been made king of the earth. He's been given the kingdom, inherited the kingdom, and you're to serve him. Serve him with all your heart. Serve him with all your mind. Serve him with all your, your, your soul. Serve him with all of your strength. Now you say, now as you say that, Ben, I, I thought we were supposed to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's right, you are. But he who loves the Lord with the fullness of who he is, the fullness of who she is, will serve the Lord. 
You see, our love is an over, or our, our service is an overflow of our love for Him. And we're not just going to serve Him here and there and pick and choose. I'm going to serve Him here, but not there. No, we'll serve Him everywhere. Guys, what a joy it is to serve the King. Praise God. What a joy it is to serve the King. Not because we have to, although He's commanded us to. We get to. We get to serve the king who's going to inherit the kingdom. I want you to know, 2022 is my 25th anniversary. Or I guess I should say it, my 25th birthday of being a Christian. I have followed Jesus now for 25 years. I have served the king now for 25 years. And if you're here this morning... And you've never yet begun to serve the king. I want to tell you, I've never regretted it one day. It is the best decision that you will ever make when you come and serve the king. But I get it. You're not there yet. Some of you are not there yet. Well, here's what you need to understand. And because I love you, I'm going to tell you this. You need to hear this. You're not there yet. I get it. But here's what you need to understand. If you are not a servant of the king, then what are you? The Bible tells you that you are a rebel to the king. Either you're a servant or you're a rebel. There's no other category. There's no middle ground. There's no fence setting. You see, to be on the fence is to be against him. And so today, if you're on the fence, or maybe you're off the fence on the other side, (laughs) clearly, in your mind. You know that you are a rebel. Clearly you know that your life is standing against God and you're running from God. Won't you surrender to him today? Won't you surrender to the one who has been given the entire earth by the ancient of days? You know, we hear so much today about being on the right side of history. That's like one of the stupidest phrases I've ever heard. It's one of the most godless phrases I've ever heard because what it usually means, what they mean by that when they say you better be on the right side of history, they mean you better be on the right side of public opinion. That's what they mean by that. But here's the deal, guys. Check this out. Don't don't worry about being on the right side of public opinion. You better worry about being on the right side of God. Amen? Listen, the, the, the fourth beast, did you see what happened to him? He looked big. He looked bad. He had teeth of iron and all the things. Ten horns. Remember, ten horns means he is powerful to the max. You're not as powerful as that fourth beast. And with a simple snap of his fingers, the ancient of days, slew him. And beloved, listen to me today. If you are not on God's side, if you are a rebel instead of a servant, then here's what's going to face. The Bible says, if you die a rebel, you will be cursed and you will be crushed forevermore. And so I say to you this morning, I beg you, Again, I say this because I love you. Get on the right side of God. Surrender to the king. Serve the king. Before it's everlastingly too late. You see, Jesus said one day, 
You're either going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, or you're going to see him coming in the clouds. One way or the other, you're either going to die and go to heaven where Jesus is there at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, ready to judge the living and the dead. Or you're going to be alive here on the earth and you're going to see him coming on the clouds as the Son of Man. Even as Jesus said there, remember he said, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. Either way, whether you see him in heaven or you see him coming in the clouds, then listen. It'll be everlastingly too late. Today is the day of salvation. You're not promised tomorrow. Surrender today. Be saved today and begin to serve the King today. I pray this Easter, as you worship Jesus, it'll be more meaningful because now you fully understand what does it mean when Jesus repeatedly calls himself the Son of Man. Here's my final prayer as the praise team comes. May you be ready when the Son of Man comes on the clouds. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live, and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. 
Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.